Listen, this morning we're going to wrap up James chapter 5. Fifteen weeks after we began this journey, we now are at its conclusion. And James has had a lot to say about our tongues, the, the words that we say and how we say certain things. And this chapter in chapter 5 is, is without exception to his emphasis on the tongue. He's already mentioned some of its lowest uses, like in verse number 9, how the tongue is used for complaining, or verse number 12, how it's used in swearing. But he also used some of the highest uses of, of the tongue, such as proclaiming the Word of God in verse number 10, and praying and praising God here in verse number 13. And verse 13 is where we're going to pick up today. Prayer is a high and holy privilege. And just think, as, as God's children, we can come freely and boldly before the throne of God at any time in our lives to present our deepest needs and, and most heartfelt desires. And God longs for us to, to be in communication with Him. Several times, in fact, seven times in this last section, James talks about prayer. The mature believer is prayerful through the troubles of life. Instead of complaining about their situation and circumstance, a mature believer will talk to God about it, will seek to, to, to present their, their need and their circumstance to God so that they can hear from God as He answers their prayers. So the phrase, taking it to the Lord in prayer, is certainly a mark of spiritual maturity. And so let's begin in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, we'll stop right there. It is likely that as children of God, we are going to experience times or either short seasons or long periods of suffering, times of great trials and, and difficulties. It's very likely that some of the difficulties that we face in life are not brought about because of any specific sin in our lives, nor is it necessarily brought about because of the chastening of the Lord. Sometimes we have to go through difficult seasons in life for the glory of God to be displayed in and through it. And so what should we do when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering? James tells us we should pray. We should pray asking God for wisdom to understand how we're to use this circumstance for His glory and, and to the praise and honor of His name. All the way back in chapter 1 and verse number 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. And so prayer can, it can remove our affliction if that's God's will. But, but, but prayer can also give us the grace that we need should God not remove the affliction in our life. That prayer can give us the grace that we need in order to endure those troubles, ensuring that we give glory to the God in the midst of it all. 
give you an example in Scripture. Paul prayed that God might change his circumstances. But instead, God gave Paul the grace that he needed in order to turn his weaknesses into strength. So listen as I read this. This isn't on the screen, but it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verses 7-10, through 10, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul prayed that his difficulty would be removed. And God's answer to Paul's prayer wasn't to remove the difficulty from his life, but to give him grace and insight into how those difficulties would be used to honor his name. Our Lord himself, think about it, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, he prayed three times that this cup would pass from him that this cup of suffering that he was about to have to endure, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, Daddy, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will be done. And so the Father gave him the strength that he needed so that he could endure the cross for our sins. I think that perhaps two of the greatest weaknesses in the average church today are in the areas of prayer and praise. It seems like we spend a lot of time in prayer, or even giving praise unto the Father for the things that He has done in our lives. There is much need for prayer, and there is much cause for us to praise His holy name. Our suffering should elicit prayers, absolutely. But our sufficiency should also elicit praise from our lips. And James used several questions to stress these points. He says, is any of you suffering? Let him pray. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then he asks this third question. He says, is any of you sick? This part of of James has a great deal of misunderstanding that has resulted from these verses. In fact, I'm going to share you my understanding of these verses and the understanding that I'll hold, I recognize, isn't held by every theological mind that I respect and and follow. But the heart of the problem, I believe, lies in the proper understanding of the meaning of the word sick. And so let me give you a little Greek this morning. The word sick that's used here in verse number 14 comes from this Greek word called asthenai. Asthenai. doesn't really matter how you pronounce it because nobody really knows the proper pronunciation of Greek words. Did you know that? So if you just say it with confidence then everyone believes that that's the way you say it. So this word literally means to be weak. To be weak. 
So although it's used in the Gospel for physical illness, when we find this word used in the book of Acts and, and through other epistles, it, it's usually used in the, in the essence of a weak faith or a weak conscience. I'm going to show you some of these places on the screens. Acts chapter 20, verse number 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, the same word that we get sick, in verse number 14 of James chapter 5. He said, we'll help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Then in Romans chapter 14, verse number 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. Then one more. This one's a little bit lengthy. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Beginning in verse number 7, it says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat meat, I'm sorry, eat food as really offered to an, an idol, and their conscience, being weak, same word, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in a temple's, an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So there's some other uses of that same word that's translated in, in James chapter 5 as sick. There's the same usage of the word that we, we've seen in other places is talking about being weak in faith or having a, a, a weak conscience. And, and then I'm personally further convinced that the word sick that's translated in verse number 14 should be considered weakness in this verse because of what we see in James chapter 5 verse number 15. Look at verse 15. He says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, the word that's used here, that word sick, isn't the same word that's found in verse number 14. It comes from a different Greek word. And so this Greek word is kamnanta. Uh, sure, that sounds good. Kimnanta means to be weary. This word is only used in one other place in the New Testament. So, so I want to show you the other usage of that specific word that's found in verse number 15. It comes to us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 3. And so it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary. There's the word. So you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is of my personal conviction that in James chapter 5, James is not referring to the sick as being those that are bedfast, those that are diseased, or those that are physically ill. 
I personally believe that he is writing to those who had become weary, those who have become weak, those who are worn out both morally and spiritually in the midst of their suffering. And don't forget, that's the context of this writing. He's writing to a group of believers who are in dispersion and they're under great sufferings and hardship. And I think it kind of bookends that reality. That's why he starts off in, in verse number one. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of very, various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He said, like, don't give up the faith. Don't lose the hope in the midst of your heartaches, in the midst of your suffering and your trials. And then then he ends it in chapter 5 with encouraging them, hey, those who are weak, this is what we're supposed to do. Those who have become weary and worn out in the midst of great opposition, this is what we should do. We We should call upon the elders of the church for help. After all, the early church leaders were instructed to encourage the timid and help the weak. Look at this reference in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 14. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, that word is the same word that's used for sickness in, in James chapter 5, verse number 14. He says, be patient with them all. And so James said that the, the elders of the church should, should pray over them. And then they, not, as they pray over them, they should anoint them with oil. And there are several different Greek words for anointing that, that helps us to understand what he's talking about. Uh, well, there's one type of word that's translated anointing. Uh, that, that's the Greek word uh, Cryo, cryo. That is a ceremonial or spiritual type of anointing. Then there's another Greek word that's called uh, morizo. Morizo, we find that word in uh, Mark chapter 14, verse number 8. And that is an anointing of the body in preparation for burial. So anointing the body with, with, with spices in and, and preparation for, for burial which is interesting because the Hebrew root for that word is where we get the word Messiah from. Messiah means the anointed one. And then there's another word that's called alifo. Alifo literally means to rub with oil. And so it's of that third word that, that is being used by James in this section so, uh, I think it's significant that he says that it should rub them with oil. James is not suggesting that some ceremony would p- specifically heal a person if it's done in the right way from a medical uh, a line, uh, or a medical issue, ailment. But what he's saying is, I believe he's referring to the common practice of, of using oil as a means to bestow honor. Uh, to offer refreshment for, for, for personal grooming, if you will. Let me show you some places where, where this word is used, and maybe that will help you uh, better understand. 
in Luke chapter 7, verse number 38, it says, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is the same word anointing that's being used in James chapter 5. Then it goes on to record later in, in Luke chapter 7, verse number 44. It says, Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Same word that's being used. And then in Matthew chapter 6, we're told in verse number 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and, and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think James's point is to those that are weak and those that are weary that they would be refreshed, they would be encouraged, they would be uplifted if the elders of the church would gather around them, rub some oil on them, and pray over them. And for the fallen, for the discouraged, for the distressed believer, restoration is assured. The elders of the church offer their prayers in faith. And the text says that that will make the sick person the weary one that will make them well. It will restore them in their, uh, from their discouragement. It will uplift them from their spiritual defeat. And the Lord is the one that will raise them up. The fact that this healing is or this restoration is a spiritual one rather than a physical one i believe is further clarified by the assurance where it says if he has sinned he will be forgiven many physically ill believers have called upon elders of the church to anoint them and to pray over them only for a sizable percentage of them to remain sick how do, how, do we, how do we reconcile that? Our prayers don't trump the, the will and the plan of God. God is sovereign over everything. And I think this helps to give understanding on how we have uh, mistakenly taken this text to be about a physical restoration rather than a spiritual or an emotional one. Verse 15 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As I read through that verse, it just reminds me that people who truly know the Lord, the reality is, still sin we still struggle we still mess up and so what are we supposed to do in times of our sin james tells us that we should confess our sins one to another and that we should pray for each other 
Again, it's my personal conviction is that we should make sure that the confession is only as wide as the sin is. In other words, if, if, a, if the sin is in secret, then that confession is between you and God. If you sin against another person, then that confession should be between you and God and the person to whom you sinned against or that, who that sin affected. If that sin was in public, then there should be that confession between you and God and that public confession between you and, and, and the public to which you, you sinned in front of. Not only that, should someone come to us to confess that they have sinned against us, then we must always, always, always be willing to forgive that person. How many times did we forgive them? Well, my interpretation of the Scripture is every stinking time. Every time. Jesus has asked the question, how many times, Lord? Seven? Seventy times seven? Like, what, what's the number? What's the magic number when I can finally look at a person and say, you know what? Enough. I'm done with you. Forgiveness is no longer available to you. Jesus says, always forgive. Always. And James gives Elisha as an example of a righteous man whose prayers released great power. Back to verse 16. It says that the prayer of a righteous man had great power as it is working. Elisha was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So here's the example of a righteous man who, whose prayer releases great power. Now the background to this incident, we don't have time to read through it all today, but if you want to write it down and check it out later, I encourage you to. But the background to this incident is found in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. There we have a, a, a wicked king, King Ahab, and, and Jezebel, his, his queen. They had led Israel away from the Lord and into the worship of Baal. And so God punishes the nation by, by holding back the rain, that much-needed rain. He's exercising punishment for their sin and their rebellion by withholding the rain. And there comes a time when Elisha challenges the priest of, of, of Baal to this confrontation and they go to mount carmel and they and he's the challenge is pray to your god i'm going to pray to my god consume the the sacrifice and so the prophets of baal they spent all day praying and chanting and trying to call down rain or the rain of fire from their gods and and nothing happens so much so as you read through it then elijah begins to just jab him you know maybe your god's asleep maybe he's not listening maybe he's gone to the restroom and he can't hear your prayers all of this and nothing nothing happens for them and then it comes time for the evening sacrifice and so elijah re repairs the altar and he prepares the sacrifice and he prays but one time and fire comes down to consume it all in that moment elisha proved that Jehovah was the one true God. 
but the nation still needed rain. And so Elisha goes to the mountaintop and he prays. And he sends his servant out to see if there's evidence of rain. The servant comes back and says they see nothing. Seven times he, he sends his servant out, and the seventh time the servant comes back and says, there's a little cloud in the distance. And before long, there was a great rain that came, and the nation was saved. I think that people are too quick to dismiss this as an example because Elisha was a prophet of God. For some, I think there's a tendency to think, well, of course God responded to his prayers. That was his guy. But I want you to realize how, how quick James was to normalize the prophet. In verse number 17, he said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't a perfect prophet. In fact, right after his victory on, on Mount Carmel, Elisha becomes afraid and discouraged and he, and he runs away and tries to hide. But he was a righteous man. It means he was obedient to the Lord, trusting in the Father. And Elisha prayed in faith and God told him that he would send the rain so he could pray with confidence that God was going to do what God told him that he would do. Understand, our prayer isn't about making God be submissive to our desires. Our prayer is joining our hearts and joining our prayers with the will of God so that He can accomplish His purpose on earth. Elisha prayed in faith because he knew that God would do what He said He would do. We're told in 1 Kings 18, verse 1, it says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. God promised, he told him I would do it. So, so Elijah can now pray in faith because he believed that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So, so James gives this encouragement to, to us to, to be people of prayer. In the midst of your suffering, pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for understanding. Pray that God would give you feet for the path that you're on. And if any of you are discouraged, if any of you are weary or, or worn out or just so frustrated that you feel like you want to quit, and call upon the elders of the church that they may surround you, that they may anoint you with oil, and they would pray in faith over you so that your spirit can be uplifted and you can realize that God is true to who He is and He always will be true. And then James wraps it up with a, a, a final appeal to his readers. And in it, he has a touch of tenderness and I think a clear note of encouragement to us all. It says in verse number 19, it says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wandering ones need to be brought back into the fold. And James's emphasis here is not on evangelism. It's on restoration. It's revival and redemption that's in view. To be clear, James is speaking 
to believers. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So notice that believers can wander away from the truth. When this happens, the believers of the church are encouraged to to seek them out and to bring them back. What a descriptive picture. Loving one another so much that as soon as we begin to wander from the truth, that that the brothers and sisters in Christ would identify that we are wandering from the truth and we would go to that brother or sister and we would take him by the hand and we would encourage him and lead them to repentance, lead them to the right path. And think about what a different place this church would be I mean, what a different place our nation would be if we genuinely loved one another to do just that. To be so careful, to to be so caring, to be so thoughtful in how we relate to each other that we would be aware that we would see and we would see you slipping and wandering away and that would, would create a desire within us to seek you out, not to belittle or to admonish you or to speak harshly or, or cruelly to you, but in love to present you with the truth and encourage and try to lead you back and on the right path. How desperately we need a ministry of rescuing a ministry of restoration, of redemption. Oh, how the church needs revival today. Revival is for the church, for those that believe. Lost people can't be revived because they're dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. The revival that is needed is among the Christian community to repent and to become obedient to the Word of God and to the will of God. And James encourages us to pay so much attention and be so caring and loving to each other that when we begin to wander from the truth that you're going to be met with an army of brothers and sisters in Christ to lead you back to the right way. And that's it. James's words are complete. Fifteen weeks has taken us to, to systematically work through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And it brings us to the end of our study. I think now is the, the perfect time for us to examine our hearts and to truly consider, man, how spiritually mature am I? So this morning, I'd like to ask you just a few questions. But as I do that, I want us to pray. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and really close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I just want you to think. We've gone through 15 weeks of this. We're now at the end. So let me ask you, are you becoming more and more patient with the testing of life? Do you tend to play with temptation or do you resist it from the beginning?
when it comes to the Word of God, do you find joy in obeying His Word? Or do you merely study it, listen to it, learn it, without even trying to apply it to your life? Are there any prejudices that enslave you today? Are you able to control your tongue? Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Are you a friend of God or are you a friend of the world? Do you make plans for your life without considering the will of God first? Do you make your plans and turn to God when only those plans fall apart? Or do you go to Him first and foremost? Do you naturally depend on prayer when you find yourself in difficult circumstances? Are you the kind of person that other people turn to for prayer support? Let me ask you. What is your attitude towards wandering believers? Do you criticize them? Gossip about them? Or do you seek to restore them in love? What will you do today? How will you respond to what you've learned through the book of James? This morning for our invitation, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to sing. Rather, I I just want you to sit right where you are. I want you to reflect upon the Word and then to respond accordingly. We are here to pray with you if you desire. The altar is open. Would you allow the Spirit of God to move in your life? And would you do what the Spirit is asking you? Father, help us in this time. May you be pleased by what you see in us. And may we all make a decision in this moment that fully honors and glorifies you. There are sins that need to be confessed. Decisions and commitments that need to be made. God, may we just sit in this moment for a while and allow your spirit to work within us. In Christ's name I pray. Altar's open. You're invited to come.